Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. If you want to check out any show notes from this episode, listen to other episodes, or learn about Trip Hacks DC guided tours, you can do all of that over at TripHacksDC.com. If you're new to this podcast, or Trip Hacks DC in general, hello, my name is Rob. I'm a tour guide, and I founded Trip Hacks DC back in 2017. My goal is to give you my best tips, tricks, and travel hacks so you can have the best possible trip when you come here to Washington, D.C. Today, I am going to tackle one of the most important questions that everyone has when they travel, where to stay. Specifically, I'm going to give you all of my thoughts on Airbnb and why, in 2023, I can no longer, in good faith, recommend that Washington, D.C. travelers use it. Airbnb has become a bit of a lightning rod in recent years, for a lot of reasons. For me, when it comes to this podcast, and Trip Hacks DC more broadly, my goal has always been to help people have the best possible trip to Washington, D.C. Because Trip Hacks DC, as a business, is a tour company, I've been fortunate to be able to give my unfiltered opinions about things like this, without having to worry about advertisers or sponsors or the conflicts of interest that come from having them pay my bills. I also want to caveat that you might listen to this episode and not agree with me, and that's okay. There are very few universal right and wrong ways to travel, but I think it's important to acknowledge that the travel industry is quite fluid. The best things from years ago may no longer be around, and the best things today may no longer be that way in the next decade. I've actually already made a podcast episode about Airbnb, episode number 19 with Jocelyn Walters, where we talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly of Airbnb. Importantly, though, that episode was created in the winter of 2020. It was created pre-COVID. It was created, quite frankly, during a different era of travel. So that episode is still up if you want to give it a listen but I feel like an update is necessary now, four years later. Part of what inspired me to make this episode was an article by Kate Lindsay in The Atlantic from this September. I'll link to it in the show notes so you can read the whole thing. But the title is, Airbnb really is different now. And the subtitle is, at this point, the company hardly seems part of the gig economy at all. Kate's article reminded me of something important which is that when Airbnb launched a little over a decade ago, it really was pitched and positioned as a home-sharing platform. Basically, the premise was this. I live in Washington, D.C., a high-cost city, but one that's also in high demand for travelers. If I want to take a vacation to Europe next month, it would be such a waste to pay thousands of dollars in rent on my apartment and then have it just sitting empty the entire time. So, what if I could rent it out to another traveler while I'm in Europe? They'd have a place to stay that's less expensive than standard accommodations, I would make a bit of spending money for my own trip, and it wouldn't feel wasteful having an apartment sitting vacant for a month. A true win-win-win. If that's how Airbnb started, that's almost certainly not how it's used anymore. Most places on Airbnb are not someone's home that they're renting out while they're on a European vacation. A huge number of places on Airbnb are dedicated 
full-time vacation rentals. They're not anyone's home. No one lives there full-time. It's possible the host doesn't even live in the city or even the country where the place is located. As the owner of TripHex DC, I tend to hang around in a lot of entrepreneurial circles online. One thing you'll notice if you hang around in these circles is that every year or so, there is a new promise of a business model where you can make easy passive income. Make money while you sleep, they say. The sales pitches are always slick and they always end with, just buy my $3,000 online course and I will teach you all the secrets to riches. During COVID, Airbnb got popular in these circles. When I saw how many people were pitching online courses about becoming an Airbnb baron, I knew the game had changed. So just like the title of that Atlantic article, Airbnb is different now. And unfortunately, different in a way that I don't think is good for travelers. One last caveat is that I am speaking now specifically about Washington, D.C. Airbnb may still be okay in other destinations, other U.S. states, or other countries. I really don't know. Everything I'm going to say about it applies specifically to D.C. And while I'm going to refer to Airbnb for most of the episode, I think this applies broadly to all vacation rentals, whether it's VRBO or Booking.com or HomeAway or whatever else is out there. I've organized my thoughts into the 10 reasons that I don't recommend Airbnb in 2023. And at the end, I'll give some reasons why it still might be appealing, because it's not all or nothing. Even though I think it currently leans in one direction, doesn't mean it might not be that way for you. All right, let's jump in with reason number one, and that's legal and regulatory risks. That sounds kind of legalese, but here's basically what I mean. There are a lot of illegal Airbnbs in D.C. In Washington, D.C., you have to have a specific short-term or vacation rental license in order to operate on Airbnb. There are a bunch of requirements you have to follow to get one of these licenses. But in general, you have to be an individual, not a corporation. You have to have a proper business license, pay all required taxes, and most importantly, If the Airbnb is in a unit or a building or a homeowners association, you cannot be in violation of any kind of lease or bylaws. Now, why should you, the traveler, care if an Airbnb is illegal or not? Why is it your problem? The reason is because an illegal Airbnb, frankly, is more likely to put you in an uncomfortable situation and just be a bad experience. On the less severe end of the spectrum, you might have the host tell you to use the back door rather than the main door. They might say not to speak to the person working the front desk or to lie to other residents and say, oh, I'm a family member visiting just in case anyone questions you. On the more severe end of the spectrum, I want to share a question that was sent in to a local neighborhood blog recently. It's a kind of a long post, but the gist of it is that the person writing in bought a condo that is part of an affordable housing program. This program is meant for people who are of limited income and otherwise can't afford to buy a place on the open market. In exchange for getting a below market purchase price, they agree to actually live in the unit and not rent it out to anyone else. Well, guess what? 
their neighbor purchased an affordable unit and immediately started renting it out on Airbnb. This is obviously illegal for many reasons. The person writing in says they filed a complaint with the city immediately, but apparently the city is overwhelmed as a lot of similar complaints have been filed. So the person said they tried to contact Airbnb directly to let them know, but that Airbnb basically didn't care. So they were now appealing to the readers of this blog for help. Some of the comments are pretty wild, but there are two I want to call out. The first one says, quote, post a lot of signs, the front door of the building, inside the elevator, on the door of the unit, stating explicitly that this is not a legal rental. Do everything you can to make the Airbnb tenants suspicious and wary and uncomfortable. Slip notices under the door every day reminding them that they are in an illegal unit. Spook the Airbnb guests enough for them to contact Airbnb and complain. Airbnb doesn't care about complaints from the neighbors, but they might care from an actual paying customer. End quote. Another person wrote, quote, Make a ton of noise every night. Get an air horn. Pound on the walls. Ruin everyone's trip enough to tank your neighbor's Airbnb rating. End quote. Of course, it's not guaranteed this is going to happen if you book an illegal Airbnb, but I will say, as someone who has lived in big apartment buildings surrounded by neighbors, it does kind of suck to have an Airbnb as a neighbor. The examples I picked out are extreme examples, but I can see why people would react this way, especially if they've already exhausted all of their other channels and feel like nothing else is working. Another element of this is that, if you're a planner and book an illegal Airbnb a few weeks or months in advance, and then it eventually gets shut down, either by the city or by Airbnb, or the host just gives up and decides to pull it off the market, you've lost your place to stay. That's all what I call legal risks. But I also mentioned regulatory risks. Perhaps you saw just a few months ago, New York City essentially banned whole unit Airbnbs. A lot of cities have done this, or are talking about doing this. I don't think Washington, D.C. is going to ban them outright, now that we have a licensing framework in place. But this is a risk nonetheless, and one that I do feel needs to be mentioned. You basically never have to worry about this with any big brand hotel. If a hotel exists, and it's open, it's legal, it's licensed, it's insured. You have the right to be there. That doesn't mean you won't have any of the regular issues that hotels deal with, but legality isn't something you have to stress about. Okay, on to reason number two why I no longer recommend Airbnb, and it's a lack of predictability. I am generally confident that when I book a Hampton Inn, I know what I'm going to get. If I book a Ritz-Carlton, I also know what I'm going to get. One thing about chains is that they do have a strong incentive for consistency across the brand. That's true for hotels, it's true for restaurants, and any other kind of chain business. Am I a hypocrite then to recommend chain hotels even though I recommend eating at local restaurants and avoiding chain eateries? The difference between the two is, if you pick a local restaurant and it turns out to be a bust, you've only invested one meal. It's ultimately not that big of a deal. There will be other meals on your trip. But if you pick an accommodation that's a bust, that's it game over, you're kind of stuck with it. A bad accommodation can ruin an entire trip. Airbnbs can be anything, to be honest. In the commercials, they spin this as a positive. You can stay in a castle. You can stay in a treehouse. In practice, in a big city, it's not going to be something cool like this. 
And yes, I know, there are pictures. But you can't really trust professional pictures of Airbnbs. You can't really trust professional pictures of hotels either. The key difference between the two is that you can go on Google Maps or TripAdvisor and find plenty of user-submitted photos for hotels. If they match up with the official photos, great. If they don't, huge red flag. On to my number three reason why I don't recommend Airbnb, and I think this is a really important one, lack of redundancy. Another way to say this is, if something goes wrong, you have fewer backups available to you. Back in episode 26 of this podcast, my guest Chris said this is actually the primary reason he does not mess around with Airbnb. Basically, with a hotel, there are dozens or hundreds of rooms on site and staff who's there 24-7. So, he said, if he gets to the hotel room and the shower isn't working, he calls the front desk and they either assign him to another room or send up a maintenance guy to fix the shower. That's redundancy. Whereas with an Airbnb, if you arrive and the shower isn't working, there is no front desk, there's no switching to another room, and there's no on-site maintenance person. You may have to wait a few hours or even a few days before it gets fixed. Or you have to try to find another place to stay literally after you've already arrived at your destination. In episode 48 of this podcast, I asked the inclusive traveler about Airbnb, and they said they don't use it because it's too much of a gamble as to whether a place will be accessible, even if it's advertised as accessible. I'm going to cover the question of accessibility later in the episode, but on this question of redundancy, one thing that they brought up was that in a situation where a hotel doesn't have an accessible room or gave it away to someone else or for whatever reason can't accommodate in a meaningful way, the hotel can sometimes move the reservation to another hotel that's part of the same brand. To me, that's the ultimate redundancy. If a room in the hotel doesn't work, they can move you to another room. And if it still doesn't work, potentially accommodate you at another hotel. Obviously, this is not ideal. Ideally, the room you booked would be available and work fine for you. But there is some peace of mind knowing that there is redundancy. When you travel, it's not a matter of if, but when something is going to go wrong. A connecting flight gets canceled, your luggage gets lost, or there's a problem with your accommodation. It's just going to happen. The more redundancy you can build into your travel plans, the easier it is to recover from it. Next, number four, reason why I don't recommend Airbnb, and this one is a bit more superficial, and it's because a lot of Airbnbs just feel cheap, probably because they are cheap. I'm not sure if people actually know this, but hotel furniture is not the same caliber as the regular household furniture that you buy for your home. Hotel beds, desks, couches, etc., they all need to be a tier above what you put in your own living room. They need to be able to hold up for years of nearly daily use by all kinds of different travelers. Basically, they need to be able to take a beating and still be comfortable for the next guest. Unfortunately, many Airbnb owners, in their quest to make as much passive income as possible, do not furnish their places with hotel-grade furniture. Instead, they go to IKEA and buy the cheapest things that they can pull off the shelves to put in their place. Now look, I've been to IKEA plenty of times in my life, especially in my post-college years, where every dollar had to be spent as efficiently as possible. I've owned quite a bit of IKEA furniture in my apartments over the years, but man, is it cheap. 
The thing that IKEA gets right is that their stuff really does look quite nice, especially right after you assemble it. But it deteriorates so fast. And after a few years, a lot of their furniture, especially the stuff on the cheaper end of the spectrum, it is not in great shape. And this is just from regular household use. Now imagine cheap IKEA furniture taking the beating that a travel accommodation demands. Maybe this doesn't bother you, but it really annoys me. There's something I think deeply unsatisfying about booking an accommodation on vacation and feeling like the quality is just really poor. Anyway, there's not much else to say, so I'm on to reason number five, and this one is a big one, unhinged hosts. This one basically splits in two directions. First are the hosts with unreasonable expectations for their guests. These are the ones that have a big chore list that everyone has to complete, or they have a bunch of arbitrary rules that they try to enforce. Then there are the hosts that, for whatever reason, micromanage every stay or otherwise make it really uncomfortable for the guests staying there. Let's start with the first type. When you stay in a hotel, there are rules, of course. You can't smoke in the room. You have to check out on the last day of your reservation. You can't throw a loud party in your room all night long. Most travelers understand these are reasonable rules and are fine to follow them. Airbnb, on the other hand, can come with all kinds of bizarre rules. That Atlantic article I mentioned at the beginning of the episode cited a chore list that the author and their spouse found themselves doing on the last day of their trip. Instead of sleeping in and relaxing before heading home, they were taking out the trash and cleaning up the place. The chore list is just one of the things that's become kind of a meme on social media over the past few years. People posting about how they were expected to take out the trash, sweep the floors, strip the bed, wash the towels, run the dishwasher, etc. Of course, this is ridiculous because you're basically being asked to do work even though you paid money to rent the accommodation. Chore lists are annoying, but not really scary or dangerous. The unhinged hosts that you really need to be careful of are the ones who are obsessive about their place to the point where it's just not safe or comfortable to stay there. I've seen stories about Airbnbs that had poorly disclosed cameras on the property or straight up illegal cameras on the property. There are stories about hosts who hang around while the guest's inside. And if you Google unhinged Airbnb host, you will almost certainly land on a story about a host named Terry who sounds, frankly, like a pretty miserable human. I know Terry is an extreme example and surely an outlier, but dealing with this stuff, even less extreme versions of this stuff, is not something I think people should have to worry about on their vacation. All right, now I need a coffee refill. So let's take a one minute break and then I will be back with my next five reasons. If you're listening to this podcast, my hunch is that you're probably planning an upcoming trip to Washington, D.C., or at least dreaming about a future adventure. One thing I've learned from meeting thousands of travelers and doing a bit of traveling myself over the years is that experiences are usually the best memories from a trip. That's why I started Trip Hacks DC. I didn't just want to create content to help you plan a trip, but also to provide an amazing experience once you arrive. And I think it's worked because people tell me all the time that their Trip Hacks DC tour was the highlight of their trip, and that really makes me happy. So if that's something that sounds up your alley, you can head over to triphacksdc.com to learn about taking a private tour with me or a public group tour with one of the amazing Trip Hacks DC tour guides. 
and we're back. And a reminder that I stopped recommending Airbnb this year primarily because of the stories I heard, both from my own tour guests and elsewhere. Ultimately, with TripHacks DC, I just want everyone who visits Washington DC to have the best possible time. So to recap, my first five reasons are, one, legal and regulatory risks, two, lack of predictability, three, limited or no redundancy, four, feeling cheap, and five, unhinged hosts which leads right into number six, which is the fees. Airbnb is fee city. When you book a place, you don't just pay the nightly rate and tax, but also a service fee and the infamous cleaning fee. Depending on how many nights you're staying and how these fees are structured, they might add significant additional costs onto a reservation. To the point where what initially seemed like a good deal is not a good deal. Maybe it's even a bad deal. Now, I have to be honest. I really don't understand why many people think they can get away with charging all these fees. I think long term, they're damaging their own reputation and turning off their own customers. What's wild is that, as the owner of a tour company, I get cold calls from salespeople all the time trying to sell me this or that. In tourism, booking software is a big one. It's incredible because a lot of them use the business model where they tell me that their software is free for me, the business. They just take an extra percentage of my tours to keep for themselves. I tell every single one of these vendors that this is a deal breaker. I don't want my customers paying extra fees at the end of the checkout. And you know what these salespeople tell me? Oh, don't worry, people don't mind. Yes, they do. People mind. Ticketmaster is not one of the most hated corporations in the world because people don't mind. The President of the United States didn't dedicate an entire portion of his State of the Union address railing against junk fees because people don't mind. That's my rant about fees, but back to the issue at hand. All these fees, when you add them up, might make Airbnb just as, if not more expensive than a hotel. When I first started DC, if you asked someone to finish the sentence, I chose Airbnb because fill in the blank, a lot of them would say, I chose Airbnb because it's cheaper than a hotel. Sure, maybe the furnishings feel cheap and it doesn't have all the amenities, but I'm willing to overlook all of that for a good deal. Once Airbnb is not cheaper than a hotel, then it has to offer something else. There has to be some other value to the proposition. When it's not cheaper than a hotel, you're left wondering why you're dealing with the cheap furniture and the chore lists and all the quirks that come along with it. One of the reasons why the cleaning fee in particular has become a bit of a lightning rod is because Airbnb is flawed in the sense that when you're searching, it would only show you the list price, not the total price or what I call the all-in price. And hosts felt like they couldn't compete if they didn't show a really low list price. So they calculated what they actually wanted to make and kept lowering the list price while simultaneously raising the cleaning fee. It got to the point where Airbnb itself had to acknowledge this flaw and do something about it. Ultimately though, it's fair to wonder, how is it possible that when Airbnb was new, even when you accounted for all the fees, it actually was cheaper than a hotel, but now it's not? And I think it comes down to what I mentioned at the beginning. The original intention was to rent out your actual living space while you are out of town to earn a few bucks. 
In that paradigm, there's no point of profitability. The alternative is going out of town and having your place sit empty. So whether you earned $100 or $150 or $200 didn't actually matter. Now, in this world of Airbnb real estate barons, they have costs. They have to pay rent or a mortgage and taxes and, hopefully, insurance on this place. A place they're not actually living. A place whose sole purpose is to make money for them. And renting it out for beer money isn't going to cut it anymore. That's a big reason why, in addition to all the fees, I think the era of Airbnb is cheaper than a hotel is functionally over. My number seven reason why I don't recommend Airbnb is actually another important one, safety concerns. I covered this topic a bit in episode 45, Staying Safe When You Visit Washington, D.C., but I think it's worth going through again because some of them were relevant to this episode. If you haven't read it before, there is a terrifying article published by Ali Conti in Vice just before COVID titled, I Accidentally Uncovered a Nationwide Scam on Airbnb. It's a long and somewhat complex accounting of a major scam, but the gist of it is that a scammer took advantage of loopholes in Airbnb's system to essentially create fake home profiles, then hours before check-in time, tell the traveler that due to a plumbing problem, the apartment they booked is no longer available, but they can switch them to a different apartment that they own. Most people agree to this because the alternative is potentially arriving in destination and having nowhere to stay. But once the traveler arrives at the alternative place, they find it's sketchy and gross and definitely not up to par with what they thought they booked. The author of the article tracked down several suspicious profiles, all of them using two names, an apparent couple. The profiles were named things like Becky and Andrew and Kelsey and Jean and Alex and Brittany. The author was able to do some detective work and find multiple listings in multiple cities all using these two-name profiles, and all using the same photos of the same home. I'm going to let you read the entire thing if you want to know more, but suffice to say, it definitely spooked me when I read it. Some Airbnb scams are more obvious. For example, the laziest version of this scam is when someone creates a fake listing, and when you contact them to book it, they try to convince you to send them the money outside of Airbnb. They'll claim that Airbnb fees are super high, and by sending them the money some other way, they can get you a discount. A win-win, in theory, but a simple scam where they run away with your money and you never hear from them again. Even once you do successfully get into your Airbnb, another scam you need to watch out for are the ones where someone knocks on your door and tries to extract money from you. I cover these more in-depth in episode 45, but basically there is a less dangerous and a more dangerous version of this scam. The less dangerous version is one where someone knocks on the door, claims to be your next door neighbor, of course relying on the fact that an Airbnb guest doesn't actually know the neighbors, and then concocts a story about how they need money for some sort of emergency. They promise to pay you back. I mean, they're the next door neighbor after all. Uh, But of course, if you give them the money, you'll never see them again because they don't actually live next door. The more dangerous version of this scam is when someone knocks on the door and claims to be from the cable company or the water company or the gas company and says they need to come inside to do some sort of emergency systems check. Or they say the internet is down for the entire neighborhood and they need access to your router. Obviously, these are not employees of any of these companies and they are just looking to get inside to do something nefarious. 
And of course, there's the safety consideration that Airbnbs are weakly regulated and basically not inspected for safety. There could be missing smoke detectors, carbon monoxide detectors. If it's a basement apartment, it might not have proper emergency exits in the case of fire or another emergency. Unfortunately, even though Airbnb is theoretically regulated in Washington, D.C., the owners basically only have to self-certify that they meet all of the safety requirements, and there are no inspections. I have personally lived in basement apartments in D.C., and while I think they're okay when you're young and starting out and location is more important than luxury, it is really important to know how the door locks work, where the smoke detectors are, what the plan is to escape in an emergency. Basement apartments are notorious for flooding, especially during the fast-moving summer storms. So even though I've been generally very fortunate not to experience a major flood, I have had some friends who are not quite so lucky. All right, moving on to reason number eight, and that's because Airbnbs are often in less than ideal locations for tourists. And yes, I know, not every hotel is in a great location either, but generally it's easier to decipher with hotels. For example, they're not going to put a Ritz-Carlton in a bad location. They're just not. Hotels tend to be located in clusters. Some clusters are great for tourism. Others are primarily there for business travel. I've spent quite a bit of effort defining which areas I think are good for tourists, and you can listen to episode 37 for excruciating details if you wish. Over the summer, I had some guests who told me they were staying at an Airbnb, but were pretty disappointed with what they got. They said it was at the end of a long, dark block, basically up against a freeway on one side, and it was near a massive intersection that was daunting to cross, but that they had to cross to get just about anywhere. When I asked for the location, they told me and I knew exactly where it was. It's not a location I would have recommended if they'd asked me first. One thing I think travelers find hard to wrap their heads around is that the best areas to live aren't necessarily the best areas to stay when you're on vacation. And the best areas to stay on vacation aren't necessarily where you would want to live. For example, when I go to Las Vegas, I want to stay right in the middle of the strip. I want to be as close to as much as possible. If I lived there, there is absolutely no way I would want to live anywhere close to that spot. Similarly, when I visit New York City, I usually try to stay in Midtown. But I doubt if I ever live in New York City, I would want to live in Manhattan at all. Similarly, in D.C., I think there are neighborhoods that are great places to live. They have good vibes, they might be a bit quieter than in the middle of the city, but they're also kind of far from the sites, potentially far from public transportation. So if you mostly hang around the neighborhood, it's great. But if you're here to see the sites and experience the city, not so much. In 2016, Airbnb ran an ad campaign called Don't Go There, Live There. In these ads, they would say things like, don't go to Paris, don't tour Paris, and please don't do Paris. Instead, the ad said, live in Paris. The ads would say, when you live in Paris, you can make your own bed, you can cook, you can do all the stuff you normally do. They would use lines like, feel at home, do your regular routine. And these ads always baffled me, because I was like, the whole reason I get excited to go on vacation is so that I don't have to do all these mundane daily chores. I don't have to make my bed. I don't have to cook. I don't have to stick to a regular routine. 
There used to be this old joke among DC locals that whenever someone said they wanted to come to DC but not do any of that boring touristy stuff and that they wanted to live like a local, we would say, sure, let's trade. I'll go spend the day at the museums and eating at restaurants and you can drop off my kids at school and commute to an office and sit in a cubicle for eight hours and come home and cook dinner and put the kids to bed. So I'll do all that boring touristy stuff you don't want to do and you get to live like a local. This is getting a bit off topic, but my point is that Airbnb's sales pitch, if they're still using it, to live like a local isn't actually good advice. And picking a place in a location that's good if you live there might not actually be great if you're just visiting. Now, this doesn't mean that every Airbnb is going to be in a bad location for visitors. It is very much possible you can use my guide to where to stay and pick an Airbnb in one of my recommended areas. But you have to be very careful and make sure the place you choose is actually in one of those areas. It's usually not obvious from the listing alone. All right, we're getting close to the end of the list, and my number nine reason why I no longer recommend Airbnb is the check-in and check-out process. Over the years that I've been doing TripHacks DC, I've gotten this question more than a few times. We're arriving first thing in the morning, but can't check into our Airbnb until at least four. What should we do with our stuff until then? Or the flip side of that, which is, hey, we have to be out of the Airbnb by 11, but our flight doesn't depart until seven o'clock. Where should we leave our things? This is a uniquely Airbnb problem. With a hotel, if you arrive before check-in or are leaving after checkout, you simply leave your luggage with the concierge or the front desk get a claim ticket, and come back for it whenever you can. Now, I am aware that there are some apps that purport to allow you to pay a few dollars and store your luggage while you're out and about. My understanding is that these apps mostly strike deals with businesses like liquor stores and dry cleaners, types of businesses that are in a lot of neighborhoods and generally keep long-ish hours. I haven't tested any of these apps, and honestly, I'm not sure I would even be comfortable testing them with anything other than an empty suitcase. There's just something about the idea of leaving my luggage in the back of a random liquor store that doesn't sit quite right with me. Of course, if you're arriving after check-in and leaving before checkout, then this really isn't a concern. But I know a lot of people don't travel this way. Flight schedules are what they are, and check-in and check-out is what it is. And on to the number 10 reason why I don't recommend Airbnb, and I alluded to it earlier, accessibility. While a lot of the main tourist sites in Washington, D.C. are accessible, and while I think hotels are generally good in this regard, I don't think the same is true for Airbnb. Remember that an Airbnb can be just about anything. It can be an apartment inside a bigger building. It can be a standalone house. It can be the basement apartment of a row house. A lot of older houses in D.C., and more or less all basement apartments in D.C., are not accessible. Usually, they have a staircase leading up to the front door or leading down to the basement door. Even if it's not a huge staircase, accessibility is not a spectrum. In many cases, it's all or nothing. One of the things I asked the inclusive traveler about in episode 48 is whether they thought hosts were well-intentioned but possibly ignorant about what accessibility really is. And the reality is that even if someone is well-intentioned and thinks their place is accessible, if it's not, there's nothing they can do to change that in the moment. No amount of feeling bad or apologetic is going to fix the current situation. For example, someone might think their apartment is accessible because it only has one or two steps instead of a full staircase. But that's not how accessibility works. Something I personally learned from that conversation is that accessibility is more than just getting in the door and up the elevator. 
the living space and bathrooms need to be accessible too. Now, if you're a traveler for whom accessibility is a top concern, you probably already know all of this, but I wanted to include it in case you're traveling with someone else, a friend or family member who might not be a seasoned traveler or know all of the ins and outs. All right, so those are my 10 reasons why I don't recommend Airbnb in 2023. But before I say goodbye, I also wanna run through some of the reasons why, after all of that, you might still consider it for your trip. My goal with this episode is not to be negative for the sake of it, but rather to share what I've learned from you, my tour guests, over the past few years about the state of travel. The biggest reason I think that you might consider Airbnb is if you're a family traveling with kids, and specifically, more than two kids. Back in episode 30, I interviewed Doug McKnight, who gave a trip report of his family's 4th of July in D.C. They stayed at a residence inn, and when I asked Doug why they picked that hotel, he said, basically, when you have a family of five, there are a limited number of hotels that can accommodate. So rather than having hundreds of potential hotels to choose from, they only had a handful to choose from. He said, if they were a family of four, they probably would have picked a different hotel. Or if it was just a couple's trip without the kids, they probably would have picked a completely different hotel still. What's best for you isn't merely a matter of taste and budget, but also what works specifically for your family needs. If you have a family of five, perhaps you can find an Airbnb with two bedrooms and a couch in the living room that one of the kids can sleep on. Or if you're a family of six, maybe there's a three-bedroom Airbnb out there for you. I am very much sympathetic that traveling with kids adds a layer of complexity to any trip, and every additional kid is that much more complex. For larger families, even after taking into account all 10 reasons why I don't recommend Airbnb, it still might be the best option for your circumstances. The next reason I think you might still prefer an Airbnb is if you really value the kitchen amenities and actually plan on using them. This is very much a case of personal preference. For me, when I travel, the last thing I want to do is cook. I want to try the local restaurants. I want to take all the food tours. I want food to be a part of the experience of a destination. It's not that I can't cook or that I don't know how. Quite the opposite. One of my biggest weaknesses when it comes to giving tips via TripHacksDC is restaurant recommendations because I just don't eat at very many restaurants here. Almost all of my meals are cooked at home. If you've ever taken a tour with me, after we finished, I probably went home and cooked something to eat in my own kitchen. My personal travel philosophy is that vacation is a time to escape the chores of daily life, not to recreate them in a new location. Last winter, I was lucky enough to go on my first international trip since COVID. It was two weeks long, and since it was a long-ish trip, I stayed at an extended stay hotel, and it did come with a kitchen. There was a full-size fridge, a microwave, a sink, and an oven. I think over the course of those two weeks, I used the oven once to heat up leftover pizza, and the microwave maybe twice to heat up other leftovers. Admittedly, having a full-size fridge was nice. It was quite satisfying to buy an entire 12-pack of soda and have them cold and ready to drink whenever I felt like one. But would my trip have been that much worse if I had to make do with a standard hotel-sized mini-fridge? No, not really. That said, eating every single meal during a trip at a restaurant is not cheap. All of those meals add up over time, and the bigger your family, the more it adds up. I can see the value of cooking at least some of your own meals. 
even if you do still go out to a few restaurants in between, I think the key is you have to be really honest with yourself here. Are you really, actually going to be cooking a bunch of meals in your Airbnb? Or is it aspirational? When people travel to Washington, D.C., they often go hard. They see a lot of sights in relatively little amount of time. It's rewarding, but it's also exhausting. Will there be the time and energy for cooking after all of that? It's a question that ultimately only you can answer. Another situation where an Airbnb may be the better option is when you intentionally want or need to stay in an area where there aren't hotels. I find this is typically the case when you are visiting someone rather than visiting Washington, D.C. more generally. Most locals live in neighborhoods, not downtown and not near the tourist sites. So if you have a family member or friend who lives here and your top priority is being close to them, then Airbnb may very well be the best way to do that. In a situation like this, I would really advise you to ask the person who you are visiting to take a look at the place and make sure it has their approval. Neighborhoods are often unique in the sense that a spot only a few blocks away from somewhere else may be much more or less desirable. For example, maybe your friend lives on a quiet street, but a few blocks away is a major road that's busy and noisy and would not be a great place to stay. Locals tend to be experts on their own neighborhoods, so I would value what they have to say. And before I wrap up, I just want to reiterate that the reason I made this episode is not to be negative for the sake of it, but because I ultimately want everyone who comes to Washington, D.C. to have the best possible trip that they can. I didn't talk at all about the impact of Airbnb on the local housing market, how it impacts the affordability of housing in an already very costly city. That could be its own episode, but it's outside the scope of this one, which is focused on you, the traveler. I still think the original premise of Airbnb, where you rent out someone's actual home while they're on vacation, has some value. I do think that can be a win-win situation. These types of home swaps have actually been around since well before the internet was even a thing. But I do think things are different now. I think Airbnb as a platform for people to become amateur hoteliers has changed the dynamics considerably. Running an Airbnb or a hotel or a tour company means you're in the hospitality business. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people got into Airbnb, especially over the past few years, because of the promise of easy passive money. And once they realized it's not going to be easy and they actually have to provide hospitality when you're in the hospitality business, things kind of started to break down. Back in episode 34, I talked about my experiences with Airbnb from my own travels. I talked about three Airbnbs that I stayed in. The first one was someone's actual home. I used Airbnb the way Airbnb was originally intended. The other two were clearly full-time vacation rentals. One of them, I am pretty sure, was illegal, and you can go listen to that episode if you want to hear the story about how I discovered it was probably illegal. While the first experience was great, the other two were kind of not. About a month ago, there was an article published in Bloomberg, and the title was, Airbnb is broken, its CEO says. Here are his plans to fix it. It's really quite something when a CEO admits their own company is broken. Not that it's never been done before. Sometimes the only way forward is to admit that the status quo is flawed, not working anymore, and use that as cover to make some pretty drastic changes. So 
maybe three or four years from now, I'll record another updated podcast episode about how Airbnb is now the best accommodation available in D.C. But I can't predict the future. I can only tell you about what's going on now. Since I don't have a guest for this episode, I want to do one more plug for TripHacks DC Tours. I've been a tour guide for over a decade, and I love showing people around when they visit. I am able to produce this podcast, the TripHacks DC YouTube channel, and all TripHacks DC content completely free, ad-free, and without having to balance the conflicts of interest that come with having advertisers, all because of everyone who signs up for a tour. So if you've toured with me or are planning on it, then you are absolutely my favorite people. And if you want to find out more, just head on over to the website and check it out. Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.